So uh, it's, it's my uh, privilege to introduce our speaker today since Dr. McCurdy is traveling around the world while we all do hard work. Somebody's got to work. Yeah, somebody's got to work. So it, it really does give me great, great privilege to introduce uh, Dr. Samuel Tisherman. Dr. Tisherman got his bachelor's degree from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and then his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and then really kind of was a Pittsburgh lifer until we were lucky enough to recruit him here to the University of Maryland, where he is a tenure-track full professor in surgery and has really kind of changed the way we have continued to educate our critical care fellows, both on the surgical side and on the medical side. So without further introduction, we're going to hear a talk about preventing surgical airway disasters by Dr. Samuel Tisherman. Thanks, Sam. Great. Thanks, Nirav. Um, Mike, wherever you are, I hope you listen to this sometime. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying your travels. Uh, but anyway, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you guys. And I hope that this will be somewhat interactive. I don't want to just stand here and talk. So if I ask questions, that usually I, hopefully you'll get You'll answer what I ask about. Um, okay, so to get the ball rolling, um, here's a case. Let's say you've got a guy that comes in um, uh, with trauma, and he's got some uh, stab wounds to his neck, and you go to intubate him and uh, can't find any airway. Um, and that's what you hear in the background. So uh, what are you going to do? So you can hear this a little more urgency. Do a crank. Because <laughs> if you don't, okay, good. So there's somebody that needs a surgical airway quickly <laughs> before this gets any lower. Or then if not, then you see this come across the screen. <laughs> All right, so the key thing here, and we'll get into some of the spe specifics, but you got to think about it early before you start hearing that stuff going on. Um, and do the, what you need to do. So what I hope to do is go through a little bit of uh, some emergency situations of surgical airways, uh, elective surgical airways, some special, so a few little special points, and then finally some complications and hopefully how to try to prevent uh, some of the disasters along the way. So starting with emergency stuff, not to get into history much, but I just love this comment from uh, Jackson, who was the Jackson of why the metal Jackson trachs and you know, early early descriptions of trachs actually came from a paper by him done in Pittsburgh, by the way. But anyway, um, but this 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 drama is great. With an obstructed larynx, the trachea is opened by a stab rather than an incision, and it's small wonder that the percentage of mortality is almost as high as of stab wounds inflicted with homicidal intent. I, you know. The, these days, we aren't often quite as dramatic when we write literature, but these kind of stories are great. So hopefully we're not going to do this with in, uh, homicidal intent. Um, now, and I will mix in here a little bit of di uh, difficult airway algorithms, because that kind of plays into emergency surgical airways, because you know if the regular kind of intubation doesn't work, then you hit the surgical airway. But I always love looking at things like this. the. Uh, um, American Society of Anesthesiologists difficult airway algorithm. 
and you got all these complicated things, lots of options, and, and I mean, this has probably been updated, but it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's all kind of complicated. And down in the corner, in little letters, it says surgical airway. Similarly, it gets a little simpler when you look at the advanced trauma life support course, and you got a little bit of an algorithm, but then again, down at the bottom, surgical airway. One the key point I really want to get across is that don't wait till you've crapped around with all this other stuff before you think about a surgical airway, because if you do, it's going to be too late for anything. So you got to think about it earlier. Uh, you know, maybe not necessarily do it, but at least be ready to do it. Don't wait till you've done tried everything else. And being surgeons, of course, ATLS also makes it a whole lot simpler. Forget that whole complicated algorithm, and basically. Inability to intubate the trachea is the only indication for creating a surgical airway. Pretty simple. But again, you don't want to wait till you've tried everything possible before you go for a surgical airway. Now, before I get into the surgical airway again, uh, to focus on difficult airway stuff, so who are you going to call if you think you got a difficult airway? And one of the things that actually I've started to push a little more here, and it's a little more complex here because of because the airways are so well managed uh, in the OR and outside the OR by the anesthesiologist, but I think there's still some room for some uh, difficult airway type team. Uh, we had one at Pittsburgh, it was called Difficult Airway Management Team or the DAM Team. So <laughs> someone says, we'll call the DAM Team. And <laughs> actually people knew who that was. Uh, or at Hopkins, they call it the DART Team, Difficult Airway Response Team. But who do you want on that team? And that's kind of an important part of this. So you want the, whoever the, the best intubator, somebody that can, it's the best chance of getting an airway in from above, but you also want somebody that can accomplish a surgical airway quickly, and that's typically going to be either a trauma type attending uh, and or a, a chief or fellow at that kind of level. You certainly don't want to send the PGY1 who's going into urology to a response to hopefully try and get a trach in a place or a crake in a place. And then you need equipment, and you may need something, some equipment beyond what the usual um, stuff is. And you know, as I pointed out with the, the algorithms, you don't want to wait till the patient's dying and you hear the boop, 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 you know, getting worse as you're trying this. But you don't also want to go too early. And the only other thing I'll add about how the system, in my mind, ought to be set up, and this is sort of the, the rule of law that we had with our difficult airway response in Pittsburgh is when you get to that point and you got a bunch of people at the head of the bed, everything's failing, and you have a surgeon in the room with a knife, the person that's going to make the decision to use that knife is that surgeon. Because, you know, we've all been there. When you're trying to do some kind of procedure, your ego gets involved, your own adrenaline's running, and you're going to keep trying unless somebody pushes you out of the way. So the point being the... Um, well, I'm not sure if I want to put logical and surgeon in the same sentence, but it's true. But the, the person that's most objective in the room is going to be the surgeon with a knife who's going to say, okay, you've had your shot. I'm going to take my knife to this guy's neck. And I think that's the way it really ought to be. Because otherwise, the people that have the bed keep saying, oh, no, just give me one more try, one more try. You know, and meanwhile, the guy's dying. So just a couple comments on the way that this was started at Hopkins, because they've written about it, and unfortunately, People at Pitt who did a great job setting this up never really published it. Um, but this is some of, some of the components of it, of coming up with a standard card of, of uh, equipment, educating staff 
having difficult airway in, uh, information available, uh, formalizing the educational program, uh, working out a pre-anesthesia pre or pre-intubation assessment, using simulation, running people through difficult airway type courses where, of course, part of the course is when do you go to the surgical airway. And then, like anything else, you got to continuously update people. They also had a process where they kept adding stuff to the cart, and some of these things you guys will probably never see anymore because we've got Glidescopes and CMAX and, and Bronx, but you know, having a fiber optic available. Uh, the light wand or lightest dilet is pretty well gone. I've got a dusty one that I have sitting in my office just to, if anyone wants to see one. Um, and then some of these other funky um, uh, scopes that are around. The Aintree is actually a neat thing for anybody. I've never actually used it myself, but, but I know our anesthesia colleagues. Anybody here have used it? Anesthesia people here? Maureen left. She probably has. But it's a very, it's a very cool device because it's actually a, um, uh, basically a, a obturator, a tube that fits over your bronchoscope that so you use the bronch to aim this tube into the airway and then you pull out the bronch and now you've got a basically like a tube exchanger in the airway that you can then advance your endotracheal tube over so it's instead of either using a bougie where you actually have to visualize the airway yourself uh, with a regular scope uh, or, or some other approach this allows you to visualize the airway directly and then pass your tube exchanger into the airway, and then you can put the tube in over that. So there's a lot of toys around. One really important thing about all this is it's important to be uh, familiar with what toys are there if you're going to use them, because the first time you touch the toy shouldn't be when the guy's getting bradycardic and stats are in the 40s and he's about to die. The other thing that they, they published as part of their uh, experience at, at Hopkins was this, where um, early on they had a bunch of people that got surgical airways, and then you see as they implemented this DART team, the number of surgical airways went down considerably. And at the same time, the number of people with difficult airways went up. And this isn't so much that um, there are more people running around with difficult airways, although as our uh, population gains in weight, that may be partly true, but it's also identifying it. And that's one of the really important parts of this whole process is that if you identify that somebody truly has a difficult airway, it ought to be plastered on the chart. Now, it's certainly, you know, you get into you know, patient confidentiality, stuff, uh, confidentiality, and you don't want to, like, on the front of their room, but you want to make sure that anybody involved in taking care of that patient quickly knows that that patient may have a difficult airway, and then your management should be different based on that. And one of the other interesting laws about this whole thing at the University of Pittsburgh was that if anybody, and any of us could put the order in the chart that the patient has a difficult airway, the only way that ever gets removed from the chart is either by God or the chairman of anesthesia. So it shouldn't be willy-nilly, oh, no, it wasn't really all that hard. Let's just take it off. I didn't really mean it. It really needs to be a thoughtful thing. And so actually, we're now, Megan Anders and I and some others are kind of trying to work out more difficult airway stuff to have here in the cards and have a little packet of stuff that could be helpful. And, and this is a list, and I just will not to go through the list at all in detail, but to point out the Aintree intubating catheter, that's the catheter that fits over the bronchoscope. That should be in there. The prepackaged Crike kit by Cook, which I personally never use. I'm not so sure that it's the thing to do at all. If you have availability of a surgeon with a knife, 
but it's in there and there's actually some nursing rule in the state of Maryland that they have to have that available, but it's not so easy to use and, and but it, it is around. Smaller endotracheal tubes are really, really helpful. If you can get anything into the airway, then oftentimes you can get a small airway in. So that's difficult everything, which will hopefully prevent you from needing an emergency surgical airway. But what if you do? So what are alternatives? What about the this? larynx is located and stabilized, preventing the trachea from lateral movement. Locate the Adam's apple. Prep the area. Slide the index finger downward to locate the cricothyroid membrane. Insert the needle through the membrane, maintaining sure a 60 degree angle caudal while aspirating the syringe. Once the needle has entered the Although trachea, that looks like it's a air will be aspirated into the syringe, <laughs> so confirming that the tip of the needle is properly located. Advance the catheter into the trachea an additional inch. Remove the syringe and the inner metal needle, leaving the plastic catheter in place. Care must be taken to avoid kinking the Teflon catheter. Attach the oxygen tubing or commercially available device and ventilate the patient by occluding the hole in the feed tubing with the thumb for one second, watching the chest rise. The hole should then be uncovered for four seconds to allow for expiration. Secure the catheter in place with tape. The catheter must continuously be stabilized manually and observed for kinks. So what do you think of potential complications of doing this? Because this, when people started doing this, it was really, really popular. It's kind of gone away, but it's actually a fairly easy technique as long as you know what you're doing. So what do you think are potential problems with it? What's that? Misplacement. What will happen if you misplace it? Well, if it comes out, that's not so big of a problem. If it comes out of the airway but it's still in the neck and you puff, now the whole neck is full of air, so that's one of the biggest problems. You can kink it, and you can have some other problems, but probably the biggest issue is, that's why, as you commented, your hands need to be very firmly there, and so one person's sole job ought to be to keep that in place until you do whatever the next step's gonna be, some other definitive airway, because this is clearly not a definitive airway, but it can help you buy some time. Couple things about it, you do need to use direct wall oxygen, it's gotta be like 50 PSI, so you can't have the regular air on it, you gotta have high flow oxygen. It's not gonna work well with a struggling patient. Uh, if you go through the back wall, that would be a bad thing too. Insufflating the esophagus is not gonna help. Uh, Sub-Q air and kinking, secretions can clog it up very easily. Um, there's some thought that obviously you're jetting down this way, if there's no way for air to escape upwards around it, that that could be a problem. The truth is almost nobody ever has absolutely no airway above that, so that's usually not a real issue. You can oxygenate pretty well. You may not remove CO2 very well, but you know that's not that big a deal. If you can oxygenate somebody, you can keep them alive for a while. And this is just a temporary measure. Here's the, uh, the Selinger technique from uh, cook and basically it's the same sort of thing. You get your needle in there, you pass the wire in, and then you pass the, the catheter, and now you have a more uh, a more definitive surgical type airway that's in the cricothyroid membrane. So what if we're gonna actually do a surgical cric? What do we, to get prepared for, what do we need? What kind of, what instruments do you want? A knife? Suction? 
tube. Good. I like the list. Oftentimes you'll you'll see um, you know crate kits have all kinds of stuff on them, but really what you need is yourself, your fingers, a knife, and a tube, or or a, a big pen if you're back in the days of Mash and other TV shows. Uh, but some kind of tube to get in there. Here are the landmarks. Um, you have the thyroid cartilage, cricothyroid membrane, cricoid cartilage, and the trachea below that. You want to feel that. If you're right-handed, what side of the patient do you want to be on? The patient's right. So this is a nice picture with the left hand. And in my mind, one of the most important parts of doing this is grabbing the thyroid cartilage with your left hand, never letting go until you have a tube in the airway, particularly if the patient isn't already paralyzed and moving around. So that's the only way you know exactly where you are. The incision you're going to make, vertical, horizontal, Vertical incision, why? You can extend it and you're going you're gonna to stay away from little blood vessels. I mean, in the midline, there's not a whole lot of bleeding, except if you're a little lower down and you hit the thyroid dismiss or something. But So you want to stay in the midline. And then once you made your incision, you just stick your left index finger into the incision you made, and then you take your knife and do a transverse incision through the cricothyroid membrane. And... You can use a dilator or a hemostat or something if you want. People take the back end of the blade and put it in there and twist it. The best dilator I've found is your finger. It's already there. You've got complete control over it. Just advance it in there and you know exactly where you are. It's all by feel. There's nothing to see. You don't need lights. You don't need anything. And again, another uh, picture showing the same uh, sort of thing. One other little... Uh, trick with this. So once you get your finger in there, then you need to advance a tube. And don't get picky about what tube you stick in there. <laughs> um, and, you know, a small endotracheal tube is fine. Uh, a small trach is okay. It's usually easier to get a small endotracheal tube. You want to make sure it goes the right direction. I've certainly seen them go in and then up, and that tends not to be very helpful. So the way to get it to go the right direction is you can actually have the stylet in the tube to help guide it downward. Or the other thing, and, and this is something I've kind of come around to really liking, having been in a couple of bad airway situations and it helps a lot, is once you have your finger in there, just take the bougie right next to your finger, slide it in, you know it's in the airway, you know it's going in the right direction, and then, now you've got control of the airway, and then you can just slide in a trachea tube over the bougie. So it's real quick and, and it's much more definitive than just trying to advance the tube next to your finger or next to your hemostat or whatever you have in there. So pitfalls, everything's got pitfalls. Um, one really important thing is, is pitfalls. It sounds easy and that's why when people come up with these difficult airway algorithms, it's kind of down there in the corner. Oh yeah, we can do whatever we want and then oh, just have the surgeon do a crike. It's never as easy as you, like, as you think it is, in part because the patient's apneic, blue, getting bradycardic, or as we would say in Pittsburgh, they're bradyan dying, um, which means they're about to die. Um, and the level of stress and catecholamines in the room, separate from the patient, is extremely high, in your own too. So it's, it should never be underrated. It's very difficult to do. Uh, and obviously there can be other issues if you have specific direct injuries to the, to the airway, that can change things. Landmarks can be tough. If there's hemorrhage, edema, just uh, adipose tissue can make it tough, which is why having your finger there 
And once you made your incision, really feeling the landmarks well with your finger. You want to be sure you're in the right place. We've seen people put it in the hypopharynx, not realizing they're actually above the thyroid cartilage rather than below it. Uh, and a struggling patient makes it tough. Uh, and stress makes it tough. Now, just as a, as a side point, a crike is basically a no-no in kids because it's the narrowest part of the airway and the stenosis rate is ridiculously high. So um, in, in kids, you're going to go more for a true surgical uh, tracheostomy in an emergency situation. Now, another thing to consider in an emergency, and again, it kind of depends on the urgency and the actual problem, an awake tray can be a very good option in some circumstances. Somebody's got maxillofacial injuries, neck injuries, laryngeal injuries, a large open injury here. Uh, obviously, to do that, the patient does have to be awake and kind of breathing on their own. Um, and you've got to have a little bit of time. If the patient's crashing on you, this is out. But if you've got the time, uh, you know, like you've got somebody that's got um, you know, some really massive mandible fractures, but they're kind of able to breathe on their own. They're maybe coughing up some blood and things like that, but they're kind of okay, and you've got the time to get them to an operating room because you don't want to do an awake trach down in, in the true or an emergency department. Um, it can be a, a very nice technique to use, but that's, that's a surgeon doing this with the anesthesia uh, together. Now, as we're kind of shifting a bit from the emergency situation to elective, why in an emergency situation do we do a cricothyrotomy rather than a true tracheostomy? What's, it, what's easier? Landmarks are easier because it's, it's more superficial, right? I mean, you can, on almost anybody, you can feel the thyroid cartilage, you can feel the cricoid, but you, it's harder to feel actual thyroid or um, tracheal rings. And then as you get down lower, you've got the isthmus of the thyroid coming across, you've got other blood vessels around there. Uh, so it, it's, it's just much easier in terms of landmarks and where you are. Uh, so you know as much bleeding issues. Um, you know, the standard trachs, there's some rare complications of other stuff related to trachs. Um, and instruments, lighting, as I said, you do it by feel. You don't need lighting. And really, you need a minimum number of instruments. So that's why in the, uh, for surgical emergency airways, typically a crack. Now, I'm sure at some point you'll see uh, ENT do what they may call a slash trach and, you know, kind of a different situation with them and they're dealing with tumors and other stuff, but um, for the standard guy that you just got to get some, something into the airway quickly, the crike is typically the way to go. Now there are some semi-urgent situations like, you know, somebody that's got massive facial trauma but it's kind of, you know, breathing on their own, they're sitting up in bed and coughing up some blood and, but not in dire straits right now, you may have some options of going for the awake trach or an elective uh, or less elective but an urgent uh, trach. Uh, you got some patients where anatomy just kind of can push you toward, if this guy's got respiratory issues, yeah, maybe you can get an oral airway into him and endotracheal intubation, but maybe not. Maybe he ought to just get a semi-urgent uh, tracheostomy. And one of my rules of thumb uh, uh, relates to this. I know this might be a little old for some reason. I know what you're thinking, Bunk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? And to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. 
But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So, and, and if you look, if you just look at somebody's head and the face, and they've got, let's say they have an endotracheal tube, and it's somehow or another somebody got into them, and just look at it and say, if that tube comes out, can I get a tube back into him? Do I feel lucky? And if you're questioning that, that patient probably ought to just get a trach right then and there, or as soon as is reasonable, because you know, no matter how good you think you are at keeping this patient sedated, restrained, taping the tube in, and whatever, it's going to come out, and then you're going to be in deep trouble. So look at the patient and think to yourself, do you feel lucky? And generally, we don't want to use luck for taking care of our patients. So first message when we're talking about emergency cricothyrotomies, don't wait too long uh, to at least think about it, and don't underestimate the ease, which means that don't play around too long, and now you only have 10 more seconds to get an airway in before the guy arrests. Questions about any of that? Okay, elective. So I could spend a lot of time, waste a lot of all of our times, going through literature on timing of tracheostomy. And this is more for the elective trait. The guy's been intubated in the ICU for X number of days. Uh, and then the issues of perk versus open. You, if you can pick whatever your opinion is on timing a tracheostomy and whether you want to do it perk or open, and you can find literature to back up whatever you think. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so I don't want to get into it too much. Um, I will say at the University of Pittsburgh, this, is, this goes back at least 10 years, we try to kind of try to have sort of a group think of, you know, this is how we want to manage you know, long-term ventilation and when we would think about a tracheostomy in people. And there actually were several algorithms like this, one for people with traumatic brain injury, one for people with COPD, blah, blah, blah. I picked the one that was kind of the most general just to kind of show you. It's just some ballpark numbers. It's a bunch of people sitting around thinking about it. There's no great literature to back up whatever's in this or whatever you might want to say today. But it brings up a couple good points, at least for thinking about when to, to go to a tracheostomy. So certainly, if the patient has been ventilated for like a week or so, and it's already failed once and been reintubated, think about it. Somebody who's been intubated for over a week uh, and is still requiring more than just minimal support, however you want to define that, think about it. Somebody who has self-extubated a couple of times, uh, as one of my colleagues put, uh, and I can't remember the exact way he came up with his acronym, but his acronym was SUICIDE for self-extubations. And, you know, obviously bad things can really happen if patients self-extubate. And so if that's happened once or twice and now you're keeping the guy sedated because you're afraid you can do it again, think about a tracheostomy. Now having said all that, there's also a decent amount of literature that, you know, there's not a ton of harm whether you take the endotracheal tube out at one week or 10 days or 14 days. You know, there's no like absolute, okay, you know, if we don't, this, if we don't get this guy exhibited by Saturday, something bad is going to happen, so we better trach him. That just doesn't happen. It's not that bad. Um, you know, so 
it's it's variable. It's, I can't give you a specific thing of this patient absolutely right now should be trached. And we've got a patient in the unit right now that earlier this week I felt, um, you know, based on seeing her for a couple of days, she probably wasn't progressing very well. She's already been reintubated once. And maybe we should just go ahead and trach her, not even give her another trial of extubation. <coughs> Yesterday she looked better. We extubated her. Is that the right decision? I don't know. I do feel pretty strongly. I think we all agree, though, if she gets reintubated, we'll, we'll trach her. So it's a lot of judgment. And I think all of us who've been doing this for a while realize that, you know, it's not clean, clear cut. There's no black and white. You just got to think about it at least. When you get toward a week, you need to at least be thinking about it and thinking about what's going to, what may change or may not change that's going to then lead you to say, okay, time to trach the person. So if you're going to, if you think the patient is going to require a trach no matter what, then you probably should just do it earlier than not. And that's why you might have a different algorithm for somebody with bad TBI where unless you're heading toward brain death or toward withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, you should probably just trach them early. Now, types of trachs. Uh, again, going back to my experience at, at Pitt, um, because there were so many different types of trachs around, a trach task force was put together. They had in stock something like 80 different types of trachs. If you think about several different companies with different sizes of trachs, some with cuffs, some without cuffs, some with fenestration, some without, some with foam. There were a gazillion different types of trachs, many of which had never been used. They're sitting, you know, gathering dust. And so we whittled that down to like 20 some odd trachs and then hopefully got all the surgeons who put trachs in to agree to that list. So you do need some different sizes. You do need um, cuff trachs, uncuffed trachs. Um, one thing that I've seen here that actually people there really did not ever want was a size four trach in an adult because it's just so small it's going to clog no matter what and not very helpful for anything. But I know some of the ENT and OMF people do go down to fours here. Um, so you got cuffed ones. You have ones that have inner cannulas, sometimes called a double lumen kind of trach. For the most part, most do have inner cannulas these days. Some inner cannulas, uh, I think I have a picture coming up. Um, some some trachs can function without the inner cannula. Shiley's cannot. If that thing is not in here, you cannot ventilate through that other than just blowing some air down there. Um, you have adjustable ones like this Bavona adjustable one. The big danger with these guys is that this doesn't hold the tube very well. So this might be the appropriate position, but it's very easy for that tube to slide out a little bit. This will still be attached to the patient, and the tube will be barely in the patient. So these you got to be really careful with. Fenestrations, I think for the most part, they're totally useless. I don't know if any, any surgeons in the room ever think there's any reason for using a fenestrated trach. So the, they, they came off that list of 80 very quickly because everybody said they're, all they do is gather gunk at the fenestration. They don't really help with anything. And then you have things like these foam ones where the default position for the trach is actually that that's inflated and it's nice and soft, can be very useful for somebody with tracheomalacia. Now, so they've got a whole lot of different trachs you can put in. Uh, perk trachs. So the advantages of perk trach, well, speed is one. What else compared to an open trach? Convenience. Convenience because... So I've done a couple hundred open trachs at the bedside, so that's... 
not an absolute, but we kind of got away from doing that. But yeah, so I mean, that is one part of it. It's community, it's smaller number of people helping. You don't need as much lighting. Um, maybe less bleeding because the only hole is exactly the size of the tube you're putting in there. Smaller scar, but really, who cares? Um, as my surgical mentors would teach us, you know, wounds heal side to side, not end to end. Um, easier to learn. This is where things have changed because, I mean, I, I doubt there are any pulmonologists or other non-surgeons around who would have wanted to learn how to do an open trach, but a perk trach, hey, it's not that hard. Um, and it's not that hard, that's true, you need less assistance. I will say one of the really most important things about a perk trach is to pick the right patients to do it on. You don't want to do it on somebody that's requiring a lot of ventilatory support because you may not have great access to the airway. You don't want to do it on somebody with a big fat neck. So you got to pick people with the right anatomy and the right indication for doing the trach. You don't need lighting, it's not a big deal, you just have to, well, and there's other controversies about this, whether you do it with a bronch or without a bronch. Personally, I think I always want the bronch there. Um, there are some people I know who do it without a bronch. Uh, you don't need many instruments because all the stuff's in the kit. You know, we're, we're all keeping cook in business by doing perk trachs. Uh, decreased infection is totally variable. Uh, less tracheal erosion, that's also a theoretical thing because it's kind of fixed because there's no extra incision around where the hole is. But all that's kind of theoretical. So here, maybe. For this patient, a okay. fenestrated tapered so tracheostomy the fact that they use a fenestration, with the inner cannula removed is preloaded so for those with an appropriately sized it. lubricated dilator. So I think it's important However, that even non-surgeons know how this is done because you're going to help people do it. The tracheostomy tube is positioned so that the tip is approximately two centimeters from the distal tip of the dilator. First, the patient is positioned as for a traditional tracheostomy with a transverse shoulder roll to permit full extension of the head and neck. The neck and upper chest are sterilely prepped and draped in the standard fashion. Critical anatomical landmarks, the thyroid cartilage, cricoid cartilage, I can't and the sternal notch are identified by palpation <laughs> But I make sure marked. we can all feel where the anatomy is. The incision site is infiltrated with 1% lidocaine with epinephrine. A 1.5 to 2 centimeter transverse skin incision, just long enough to admit the tracheostomy tube, is made at the level of the first and second, or second and third tracheal rings, approximately one finger breadth above the sternal notch. A curved mosquito or hemostat may then be used to gently separate the subcutaneous tissues vertically and transversely. Around. That works pretty well too. Digital palpation is then used to free any tissue while identifying the cricoid cartilage and the tracheal rings through the incision. A bronchoscope is then inserted through the endotracheal tube and aligned with the tube. The respiratory therapist then loosens the fixation tapes of the endotracheal tube, deflates the cuff, and withdraws the ETT and bronchoscope slowly as a unit until the light from the bronchoscope transilluminates through the incision. Necessary changes in tidal volume and frequency should be made to accommodate the bronchoscope this, and so any air leak that may occur during dilatation. Sure exactly Access and is, ultimate tube placement is back. made at the level between the first and second or second and third tracheal rings. Tracheal rings are palpated, 
and a 15-gauge introducer needle is inserted in a midline and intercartilaginous I would position also, uh, take your under direct bronchoscopic visualization. So the airway air is around, taken to avoid the, the posterior in. tracheal wall. The needle is removed, and the 52,000-inch J-tipped wire is threaded through the outer catheter into the trachea to the level of the carotid. The, the sheath is then removed and replaced by the 14-French introducer dilator, which is advanced over the wire guide to dilate the initial access site. Some compression of the anterior tracheal wall is expected. The dilator is removed and replaced by the 8 French guiding catheter which is advanced to the skin level mark on the wire guide. The guiding catheter and wire guide are inserted as a unit into the trachea until the safety ridge on the guiding catheter is at the skin level. Proper positioning of the guiding catheter can be constantly confirmed by aligning the proximal end of the catheter with the proximal mark on the wire guide. This will prevent displacement of the J-wire and possible trauma to the posterior tracheal wall during subsequent manipulations. Lubrication of the dilator is accomplished by dipping the tip of the dilator into sterile water or saline. This activates the EasyPass hydrophilic coating. Dilation of the access site into the trachea is then accomplished by advancing the Blue Rhino dilator over the wire guide catheter assembly. To properly align the dilator on the assembly, advance the distal tip of the dilator to the safety ridge on the guiding catheter. The dilator is held like a pencil and advanced with a curved arcing motion into the trachea until there is a loss of resistance. Repeated advancement and retraction of the dilating assembly effectively dilates the tracheal access The aperture should be slightly over-dilated, thereby facilitating the placement of the tracheostomy tube. I also like to make one pass with that because every time you pass it back and forth, after verifying its integrity, the, the tracheostomy tube is completely deflated and the tube is then advanced over the guiding catheter J-wire unit to the safety ridge and then introduced into the trachea under direct bronchoscopic visualization. Seal kind of pushes in. I have a theory that the reason there seems to be a little increased risk of tracheal stenosis after perk versus open is because you're actually compressing the anterior wall of the trachea. Next, the blue but dilator, part of the guiding catheter, and J-wire are removed. Voila. The inner cannula is then inserted and the cuff is inflated. The ventilator tubing... So then, of course, you're going to check for CO2. I mean, the other thing a lot of people do is, before hooking up the ventilator, just take the bronchoscope, slip it in, and make sure you see tracheal rings. So any other comments or thoughts from surgeons who've done these or from non-surgeons who've watched this or done it? So... Right, and there have been other articles too that it's equally safe, um, and, and I've I've seen a couple. I, I did have a couple colleagues who would do it without a bronchoscope. They actually would typically do significantly more dissection anteriorly down to the airway before sticking the needle in. Um, and I I saw one of them excavate the patient prematurely. And uh, one of them helping me, he was doing the bronchoscope, and he extubated the patient prematurely. So I'm not sure I'll take those as good things. 
But um, personally, I think that it should be done with bronchoscopy. But people who do it all the time, you know, quote good results. But it's like a lot of things where, you know, just because one person can do it well and do it safely doesn't mean that means it's the same as everybody does it that way. I think it's safer to do it with a bronchoscope. Um, I don't know. You guys have any thoughts from the? Yeah, I think we have the tools and the, and the people to, to help out with that. And I think that it just makes it a safer procedure. There's very very little downside to saying let's do it with a cost. Right. Yeah, I mean I, I think it's the right thing, especially if you're doing it with trainees and you can see exactly where your needle is. I think it really helps avoid the biggest risk which is the posterior right. function. So I I I think we should do it with a cost, but I don't I, I like I said, you're offset, I don't see any downside to it. I think there's a distinct advantage to do Right. And one of the thing, the thing about that too is um, it's it's helpful to have two high level people, potentially I could say two attendings involved in the, in the procedure. Because one of the issues when you're doing a surgical procedure is you're not necessarily watching the patient, and certainly it's easier to be also making sure the patient's getting sedation, SATs are still good, patients getting ventilated. I personally like to have the respiratory therapist bag the person during it rather than leave them on the ventilator because oftentimes. At some point, you slip the bronch down there, and the ventilator's sitting over there popping off and not ventilating the patient, and the RT isn't even noticing it. So I'd rather have them have their hands on a bag because they can feel when there are problems. And oftentimes, you end up with a little bit of leak when you pull the cuff back to the trachea. I think you know, the more hands and direct control of everything, the safer the procedure is. Because I have seen, not patients I've been involved with, but I have seen people who died because the procedure wasn't done in the right kind of patient or the right way. But I think it's useful, and the reason I wanted to just go through the video is for, for particularly for the non-surgeons in the room, because at some point, there's a good chance, if not here, but wherever you're working, you're going to help the surgeon do this, so you need to understand what they need to see. So early versus late, PERC, open, OR, you know, ICU, it's a lot of, you know, the literature is crap, which I'm not going to go into it. It's a lot of comparison of apples and oranges, and like a lot of things, if you pick a way that you want to do things and you do it well, you do it all the time that way, you're probably doing the right thing for the patient. Just just author one paper and just for the heck of it. The, the TrackMan trial, that's a randomized trial, came out a couple years ago of patients that were mechanically ventilated for less than four days and they expected they had to be ventilated for at least a week and they randomized them to early trach or late trach, early being within four days. Um, not surprising, the people in the late group, a lot of them didn't end up get, getting a trach. So our ability to predict need for trach is terrible. That's one of the messages here. And there's no difference in mortality, length of stay, or complications. Um, so in, to kind of summarize the, the early versus late issue, it's hard to show changes in mortality, ventilator-associated conditions, length of stay. The only thing it does do is decreases duration of endotracheal intubation. That's about all I can say definitively. <laughs> now, perk versus open. Perk is nice. It's kind of quick. You don't. I mean, we, it is probably easier to do it at the bedside. Although plenty of people take patients to the OR to do a perk trach. There is a risk of loss of airway, and that's where this patient selection. That's a problem. The people I've seen where that's happened is someone with a big fat neck, and you do a perk, and your tube is barely in the airway, and then an hour later, it's out of the airway, and now you've got no airway. That doesn't end up very well. Uh, and there may be more stenosis. Uh, I'm not sure about that. So messages. Emergency cricothyroid, 
Thotomy, we've talked about, don't wait too long, don't, under, don't underestimate the ease. For trachs, respiratory care, trach when necessary, but not necessarily often, and you know, there's no great literature to, for me to tell you when to do it. Perk versus open, and, you know, depends a lot on anatomy and comfort of whoever's gonna be doing the procedure. Okay, we'll run through some special things. Obesity, that's a common problem. The biggest issue there is not putting a long enough trach in. And that's where I've seen both open and perk trachs lead to death of a patient because somebody didn't put a long enough trach in there. Um, there are long trachs, as an example, there's Shiley's XLTs, and people have different anatomy as to where the length needs to be, whether it's proximal, whether it's the curve, or it's distal. So you can get different types of elongated trachs. In fact, you know, Bavona and Smith, you can specially order you know, the exact length that you want for your patient. Um, so just keep that in mind, that if you got somebody that's got a thick neck, they need to have a longer trach. Now, how do people talk with a trach? So you put a passing mirror valve on, that's right, one way, with the cuff down, right? So they've got to breathe in through the valve, and it's one way valve, it blocks the exhalation, and they exhale through the cords. And look how happy she is, she's sitting there with her trach, uh, there are inline uh, passing mirrors, if you can find them. You can sit there and sip your latte. Um, but most of the time, we don't use these until the patient's off the ventilator. Certainly, you know, in the short term, you can get people to, to vocalize somewhat uh, just by dropping the cuff down on any tube, whether it's an endotracheal tube or a trach, uh, which can be helpful. Oftentimes, when you first do it, they'll gurgle on secretions, but once you clear that out, they might be able to talk. Another thing that's available, you probably would have to special orders, I doubt they have them in stock here, would be there are talk trachs, where there's this tubing like this that goes to a hole that's right above the cuff, so the cuff can be inflated, you're totally ventilating the patient, you blow a little air here, it bounces off the cuff and goes up through the airway. So you can have somebody totally mechanically ventilated, but talking. I, I put a few of these in people, sometimes they work kind of well, sometimes they don't. Um, it's rare anybody uses these anymore, but it's, it's a thought. If you've got somebody that's like totally awake, but you think it's gonna be trach for a long time and still need mechanical ventilation for a long time, it's something to think about if you can find one. Now it's critical to keep in mind, some of our patients are what are some people call obligate neck breathers. So there's no upper airway, they've had a laryngectomy, and this hole is the only way they will ever breathe. It's important to recognize that. Intubating them from above will not help them. And I've seen it tried. They can also talk with, with the um, uh, voice uh, devices too, but don't try to intubate them. So it's key that somebody who's got a laryngectomy should be identified to you when you walk in the room. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Potential complications of surgical airways. So what if you got somebody that's got a trach in place and the nurse calls you because they can't get any air moving through the trach. Ah. What, what are you gonna do? If they, right. So if it's a laryngectomy, that's a real problem. But yes, if you can intubate from above, that's an option. What else can you do? Right. So the so the question then, what what do you think the problem is? So one not uncommon problem is that that inner cannula is just plugged up with crap. So take it out and replace it. 
and you quickly know. Another thing is, is the tube misplaced? Is it now, you know, I don't know how many times I'll come see somebody where, yeah, there's a trach here, and yeah, there's some ties on, but if you look real carefully, it's actually slid out a bit, and it's not actually in the airway anymore. So making sure it's in the airway is one thing. That's why, that's why the inner cannula is going to be very helpful, because you can slip out the inner cannula and slip a new one back in. Um, there are some, like this portex, where actually here's the edge of the inner cannula, it's just this white part. That can come out, and you still have this green, so you can actually ventilate the patient without the inner cannula. Shiley's don't let you do that. Uh, so make sure the inner cannula is patent. Uh, considering, I mean, depending on the situation, take the whole thing out and slide it back in. Obviously, you're not going to do that on day two, but maybe something that's been there for weeks, you might be able to do that if intubating from above is not so easy. Ventilating from above is the other thing. So that comes back to what if it falls out? So we just did a trach on somebody today, let's say, and 2 o'clock tonight, the trach falls out. Best thing to do is probably just intubate from above. Get control of the airway, and then you got all the time in the world to play around and get the trach back in. Again, it's really important to know what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with laryngectomy, that doesn't work. So if you have somebody that's an obligate neck breather, you can, I mean, it's easy to slide the, trach, the laryngectomy tube in and out, so you could just take it out, slip a new one in, and see if that helps you out. If you don't have that, you, it is possible, particularly if you can get a, like a pediatric um, bag valve mask set up, you can actually bag the stoma in the emergency situation, or even slip a little catheter down there and jet them to buy some time. So you can get something in the airway, just get some oxygen and buy some time until you figure out how to get a good tube back in. Again, it's really important to label things, so, so making Andrew's efforts over the last few years have been to make sure anybody who's got a surgical type airway has a big sign over the bed. So you've got the laryngectomy signs, and. When I copied this, I kind of lost the coloring, but these are supposed to be kind of pinkish, which is sort of meant to be kind of reddish so that it says stop because you cannot intubate from above. Uh, but this should have information about what size of tube it is, what, when it was put in, that kind of stuff. A nice little drawing showing that there's nothing up here, X. Um, then you also have regular trachs, and this one has like a green tinge to it, so go means you can't intubate it from above if you have to. There should be information on here, what kind of tube is in it, does it have an inner canyon, all that kind of stuff. Now, here's a mention of a Bjork flap. Anybody know what a Bjork flap is? Yeah. Right. And so that you make a flap, actually, I'll show a picture in a second. But you actually make a flap of the trachea and bring that flap and sew it to the skin. So now, in theory, as long as that doesn't get torn away, you've got a straight shot right into the airway. And the reason that that's important, as well as knowing what's going on, is that it's not that hard to do this, which is somebody's trach falls out, and for whatever reason you can't or you don't try to intubate from above, and you slide the tube back in, it goes into a false passage. That doesn't help. Not a good plan. So you want to make sure you get the tube back in the airway. The other thing that you'll often see uh, with an open trach is you'll see stay sutures. And this is just this uh, the best picture I could find anyway of stay sutures. So uh, the surgeon puts a little tie around one trachea ring and another one, puts a tube in between. So now if that tube comes out, in theory, you can pull up on those stay sutures and slip a new tube in. Again, it's way better in the emergency situation to get intubated from above 
And you can use these to help you get a tube back in, but this shouldn't be your first move, just grabbing these things, pulling up, hoping to get the tube back in. Here's a Bjork flap and showing, uh, this is a um, sagittal section where you can see the airway. They brought this flap down, sewn it to the skin. We had one recently where they sort of did a double Bjork where they actually put a flap up too to make sure there was a hole. But I have seen one of these where the tube was changed and on day six or so post-op and the, the change probably had a tube that was barely in the airway and then when it slipped out and people tried to slip it back in that Bjork fell away and then we had a, a, a tube that was anterior to the airway and not very helpful to us. So none of these things are perfect. They're all little things that can help. Again, coming up with difficult airway situations specifically for the SICU where we have a bunch of people who have various airway anatomy. We have our own special difficult airway box. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in it. Again, small endotracheal tubes, uh, nasal tubes, uh, wire reinforced tubes, as well as other little goodies in it. So that can be very useful when you're in deep trouble. And your only option may be to get some kind of tube back into this airway. And coming back to the technique for a crike, I still think one of the best ways to deal with it is to get your finger in the guy's neck feel the hole, slip a bougie next to your finger so you know it's going in the right place, and then you can slip a small endotracheal tube over it. Just one quick aside, I don't think I've seen any of these here yet, but they probably will. So when thoracic surgeons and or ENT are reconstructing an airway or dealing with tracheal stenosis, they may put in what's called a T-tube. So this tube is kind of like this, it's, it looks like a T. So it's somewhat going up, somewhat going down. And then you look on the outside, and you just see this little kind of buttony thing. Unless you have an attachment, you can't actually ventilate or do much with this. You can oxygenate through it, but keep in mind, whatever you put in here is going to go up and down. If you can bag somebody from above, but do something like put an LMA in from above, and then just put your finger over that, you might be able to ventilate this way. But a key thing is at least recognizing what's in there and hopefully quickly getting the surgeon to put it in there so they can tell you where it is and where the stenosis is, how to deal with it. Um, some of these are low enough that you might actually be able to intubate sort of down to it from above or at least jet past it. These are difficult. There's no, I can't, you know, in a couple minutes just tell how best to manage them, but the key thing is recognize that that's what's in the patient. You see somebody who thoracic surgeons have been playing with and you see this little rubbery buttony kind of thing sitting out of the neck, that may be a T-tube, and that may make your life very difficult if the patient's in respiratory distress. So what about bleeding? You know, early on, there's often a little bit of oozing around trachs, and it's not usually a big deal. You can throw a little Surgicel or combat gauze, whatever you want around there. What if there's more bleeding? What are you worried about? Take you an official. That's bad of a big blood vessel in continuity with your airway. It happens because it, the tube is low and erodes into it, or the cuff is hitting it, or the tip is hitting it. Um, typically, it's very rare, fortunately, and it occurs in the first couple of weeks. can be much later. I, one kid we had who was like a teenager or some kind of congenital issues anyway, it's like years later, he developed one of these and his mother intuitively knew what to do, which is what? 
stick her finger in there. So she stuck up, stuck her finger in there, got the guy to the hospital, he got repaired, and did fine. Um, but these are the reasons that happens. You know, the old quote Harold bleed that's in the books. I mean, the first bleed may be the last bleed, so don't count on that. But if you see some blood, worry about it. How to avoid it? Be careful of neck extension. Uh, putting the trach in the right place, not too low. Monitoring the cuff pressure. Uh, avoiding tight closure. If you have any kind of infections, because that's going to help if things erode where you don't want them to erode, treat that. Um, long, flexible connecting tubing so it's not torquing. I mean, one of the things that bothers me to no end is walking into a patient's room with a trach, and you see the trach getting pulled over to the guy's neck because it's attached to some tubing, and the ventilator is like on the other side of the room pulling on it. So, for all of us taking care of patients, respiratory therapists, nurses, physicians, you know, when you look at somebody with a trach, it ought to look like it's comfortable. If it's not, that's a problem because it's going to be pulling on something. Emergency treatment, some people advocate just overinflating it, or as we said, the so-called Utley maneuver. I don't think Utley had a long series of these things, but I described you just get the thing out, intubate from above, and stick your finger in there to hold pressure on the bleeding. And the last thing is the tracheal tear, which is like the most horrendous thing, if you, particularly if you tear that back wall. Because now you're really stuck. Unless you can get a tube beyond that to ventilate the patient, you're not going to be able to ventilate them. So you can put them in ECMO, so ventilation becomes a non-issue. Um, and you get these you know, bad pneumothoraces and mediastinal air everywhere. And the only times I've seen iron lungs dusted off and actually brought into a modern intensive care unit for a couple of people with tracheal airways, and this never ends well. And the idea being you can get the tube out and support them with negative pressure ventilation, it doesn't work out well. So the key thing with tracheal injuries is don't let it ever happen because <laughs> repairing it and, and saving the patient can be really tough. Post-trach care, make sure you stabilize the trach as we talked about. Wash the flanges. I mean, oftentimes you see... Um, you know, erosion from the flange, kind of digging into the skin, so a little padding there can help. Suturing is really important. So one quick aside, one of the issues with the perk trach is you cannot put in stay sutures. Having said that, I've put done tons of open trachs and perks, and I don't think I've ever actually used stay sutures to get a trach back into place. So we do it all the time. It's questionable how useful they are, but keep in mind, if you do a perk trach, there will not be any stay sutures. Uh, and certainly, you know, get trachs out as soon as they don't needed, downsize as soon as that's reasonable, and that helps with the overall care. So, final comments. Again, emergency cryothyroidotomy, don't wait until the patient's dead to do it. Make sure you have the help you need quickly. Don't underestimate how easy it is to do it. For trachs and for respiratory care, think about when the patient really needs it, and, and once you do, think the patient really needs it, just get it done. Uh, perk versus open probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference in the end. Um, and lastly, you gotta have a lot of respect for the airways, whether it's you're dealing with an tracheal tube or trach, laryngectomy, whatever. And people die because of little things that happen with airways. So always have a plan. That's one thing, one thing you know, every once in a while I'll bring up around. So you know, what are you gonna do if that falls out tonight? Or what are you gonna do if that plugs? Or what, you know, think through in your mind what you're gonna do in case of an urgent situation. That way, hopefully, your, your mindset is right that when that does happen, you're ready for it. Because if you never think about those bad things happen, you're not going to be prepared and you're not going to be able to deal with it. And certainly, don't be afraid to get help. Thanks a lot.